So we spent we spent a good amount of time over the last week talking about how big of uh, subject matter we want to cover this week. And so Troy, he tried his hardest. We'll see if he uh, if he was successful in helping me figure out a way to get all these topics in a nutshell in one class. Because we talked about we could spend a whole semester probably on a topic or a set of topics like tonight. And, and we might someday in the future. So uh, let's start off class with prayer, and then we'll pick up where we left <coughs> off last week. Lord, thank you for an opportunity to gather together tonight and to really uh, continue what we've been doing over the semester with with Troy's leadership, thinking through how we can um, better prepare to share the good news that you've used to save us with the people that you brought into our part of the world, Uh, the people you've given us to interact with at work and classes in our neighborhood and our families and we pray as we think about answers to some of the difficult questions they ask us tonight that you'd help us to think clearly about them and that it would make us even more prepared to share the the good things that you've done in our lives and give an answer for anybody who asks about the hope we have in Jesus. We pray this in his name. All right so last week we talked about Skeptics, And so Troy did a great job of helping us focus in on a strategy for when that terrifying thing happens. You're, you see the opportunity, you share the good news, you start sharing what God's done for you, and here comes this objection. And we, we feared that this might happen. It's the reason we're so timid about sharing our faith in the first place, because this might happen. And so uh, Troy went through last week the strategy of using questions. And we gave you a conversation guide. And I put that at the very top for our uh, review today, the conversation guide. So you guys remember these three questions, three simple things that if you keep these, the form in mind, it may come out in any number of uh, different specific words that are related to the objection they raise. But you want to be asking these simple questions like, well, what do you mean by that? So somebody says, You know, I just don't see how a good God could let so much evil happen in the world. Okay, you're back on your heels. You're thinking, oh, no, this tough question. And instead of having a ready answer, you say, well, what do you mean by evil? So you're just really asking the question. And when they explain to you why they think such and such is bad and this and the other thing is bad, you can ask them, well, how did you come to that conclusion? I mean, that, even that canned question right there really could carry a conversation on for a while. And then lastly, have you ever considered? And um, these things tend to get at what you're going to notice or what you'll notice, and I, I'll just point this out, it's probably um, it's a, at risk of distracting. They come down to two big buckets of things, that uh, categories of thought that philosophers talk about. When you're asking these questions, you're getting to the bottom of what's the world really like? What's real? And how do we know it? Because no matter what the topic is that you are disagreeing with, with your friend, your coworker, your family member, whether it's about morality, whether it's about um, some scientific fact that they think is at odds with the Bible, or whatever the topic is, 
you're really talking with them about what's the world really like and how do we know it. And that's where most of the disagreements come in because you are taking God's word for what to understand what the world's really like. And so your view of the world is dictated by what God says. That's how you know it. They are just going by what they see, what they feel, what their senses can give them. And it's not that we reject our senses, not at all, but we know that we can't always trust our senses and our intellect, that we can be mistaken. So benefits of doing this, I kind of hinted at them just a minute ago. This gives you time to think. It surfaces the assumption that that person might be going on, you know. So you get to ask these questions, and now you're better understanding what they mean. So they might say, well, I just don't understand how a good God could allow so much evil in the world. And right away you're thinking, oh, well, that doesn't make sense. And you might be coming at it all wrong if what they really mean is, why did this bad thing happen to me? I don't understand it. And so you better understand them. It also forces them to interact and think about their assumptions that oftentimes, in fact, most times, people haven't really thought about. There's all kinds of assumptions that will go into an objection like that, and they probably have never really thought it through. It just felt right, or they heard it somewhere else. They've heard somebody else say it. And and ultimately what this does, by asking these questions, this allows you to not have to be back on your heels in a defensive position, but rather you're actually able to then kind of guide the conversation but in a passive way. So you're not really being pushy. You're not being overbearing. You're not just preaching at them. You're really trying to understand them. And in doing so, you're pushing the conversation where you want it to go. And I'll, I'll explain that in just a moment. So lesson eight, last week we talked about using questions to answer objections. This week what I want to do is really twofold. It's to help you identify, get a little bit of practice at hearing an objection and going, all right, what's behind that objection? What's the underlying assumption? And then I want to introduce you. And introduce is maybe even an overstatement. Uh, We're going to introduce you just very surface level to the direction you want to go and answers on some of these most common objections. And I'll, I'll get specific on those in just a little bit here. So, all right. So, lesson nine. What we want to do in pictorial form here is you're talking with your friend that's you who wants to be my guinea pig Vince you're my guinea pig that's you you're looking good brother all right and uh, you have a co-worker let's say that uh, comes to you your co your coworker comes and they're telling you about the rough week they've had and how they just they're feeling down and they're going and you're hearing an opportunity because you went to Troy's class and you heard him talk about that look for the opportunities think about your transitional statement and say oh I don't know how I, I can't imagine how you're dealing with that you know when I feel down I, and then you start talking about what the Lord has done for you and you start sharing the good news with your coworker right great on track but then your coworker says you know I just don't understand, though, because the Bible's got all these, it's full of mistakes, and he pops this objection out there. And you're like, "Uh uh-oh, like we're talking about again, you're, oh, no. But you took Troy's class, you were here the week that Pastor Larry was teaching, and he gave you all these cool answers to these objections, and so you get your little apologetics pin out, and you're like, pop, and you just put a hole right in that objection, right? And then your friend's like, you know it all. And he just takes off. 
That's not what we want to do. We want to do what Troy's taught us to do. We want to back up, rewind. So here's your friend. He's turned into the skeptic. That is, I don't know if you can tell what that is. That's a balloon with a stop sign on it. Yeah. I needed something that stopped the conversation, but that could pop. So that's the balloon with a stop sign on it. Oh. Creative, right? So, um, so you want to do what Troy taught us. You want to say, all right, so the Bible has all these mistakes. What do you mean by mistakes? Can you tell me a little more about what you know about this? Probably what you're going to find is they haven't they have the first idea what they're talking about. When it comes to most Christians that you talk to won't be able to tell you how we got our Bible. In fact, next semester there's going to be a class on that. If you haven't taken it yet, you need to take that class. Um, but you want to ask that question. What do you mean by that? Okay, so, so you think that because the Bible is written by men that it's got to be full of errors. Well, how did you come to that conclusion? Do you have any books at home? Are they full of errors? Why, why do you think the Bible is particularly full of errors? And you can ask that, ask the question and get them talking about this objection that they seem to feel strongly about at first. And eventually what you want to do is take something like the things we're going to talk about today and offer that as an alternative, a biblical alternative. You want to say, I see where you're coming from, but have you ever thought about this? The Bible is actually a collection of documents, historical documents, and then you can go into your explanation. And that's going to take that's going to take some learning, some things on your part. And you might not know it. You might have to say, you know, I don't know that that's the case, but I don't really know the answer either. I'm going to go. I'm going to go learn on that, and maybe we can talk about this again sometime. But what you want to do is you want to get them to start looking a little closer at their objections so that they might see some assumptions that were there that they didn't think about yet. And in addition to hidden assumptions, they might have some implications of this objection that they've raised that they haven't thought about. In fact, oftentimes, because what this person is doing is they're they're objecting to something God says, which we believe is the way the world really is. God made the world. He knows what it's like. If they're objecting to God's description of what he made, chances are what they're raising as an objection is going to be self-defeating if you look closely enough at it. So you want to help them see all these things so that, like Troy's example of his son, that they start coming to the conclusion that, you know, this objection I'm raising doesn't really make sense. And then what happens is you've got the objection out of the way, and you can go back to sharing this good news with them. Because that's really what, when it comes to this topic that we're dealing with here, with dealing with skeptics, we're talking about apologetics. A lot of times folks will confuse apologetics with evangelism. Apologetics isn't evangelism. Apologetics is defending the truth of what God says. It's it's really dealing with, you wouldn't say this to an unbeliever, but it's, it's trying to help them see the foolishness of unbelief so that you can get that objection out of the way and then go back to sharing the good news with them. So what I want to do is I want to take a look at, I brought a book in here, we've got it in the Resource Center, and I'm going to recommend it to you that you buy it. So uh, we have the book for this class called Questioning Evangelism. This is really the bigger picture um, that Troy's been teaching over several weeks. This is really focused in on what we're talking about today. And that is the, if you look at the table of contents in this book, you'll see the whole first part of the book is dealing with the seven most common objections of the man who wrote this, Tim Keller. He's a church planter, pastor in Manhattan uh, for over 25 years, and he would have a Q&A session 
after his Sunday morning services every week. And this book is really derived from the seven most common objections he would hear raised in those Q&A sessions. And so he goes through it in very great detail, but in an easy-to-understand way. In fact, I brought... I. I won't play it for you because I know we're going to be pressed for time tonight, but the audible.com, if you've ever used Audible books, I love Audible books. You can listen while you're driving, while you're working around the house, uh, while you're doing anything that is kind of, you know, working in your yard that doesn't cause you to have to focus and concentrate. You can have a book going and you're reading without having to stop and read. Um, and he's the reader in the audible.com and his voice is just so easy. It's such conversational, easy to follow. So I highly recommend it. But these are the seven most common objections. I'm going to back up uh, real quick because I want to show you this too. That's the first part of the book. In the second part of the book, he goes through and he says, all right, so now that you see there are reasonable explanations for these objections, he makes the point to, if you're the non-believer, that these aren't really proof about God. Uh, Because the Bible says we don't need proof. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 that we all know God. We're created in his image, and we can't escape knowledge of God. But what this does is points to kind of a cumulative case that we're holding down, like Romans 1 says. We're suppressing something that should be intuitive to us. And then in the next chapter, he says, now that I've explained how these are all clues for God, I want to explain to you how you already live like what I've said is true. And so that's what his next chapter does. And then he goes over in the last few chapters. I read this book initially because I thought, oh, this would be great for apologetics. I'll learn all these answers and how to answer objections. And I got to the last three chapters of this book, and it's one of the most devotional books I've ever read. I I, I remember getting to the end of it going, I'm just so overwhelmed with what God has done for me. Um, Because that's what the book's all about, telling other people what God's done for me. So highly recommend the book. Um, I'm going to use the first seven chapters, these topics, as kind of the outline. And we're gonna we're gonna hustle through them. The first two I'm gonna spend a little more time on. And as time allows and as your questions merit it, we can pause and take more time. So let's go with the first one. There can't just be one true religion. And you guys wrote these down, I think uh, let's see, do you have that one up here? Uh, competing Competing revelational claims. That's at least that one kind of hints at this. Uh, and then Book of Mormon. Uh, we talked about the blind man and the elephant over here. So, have you guys ever heard this one? Who's heard this one? There can't just be one true religion. How how could you think that just there's one, just one way? There's a famous clip of Oprah Winfrey. I don't know if you've seen that. I think Pastor Ken showed it one time, where she has a person in the audience. And, um, in fact, in that segment, there's a pastor from the Detroit area that we that you might know. Uh, in that segment, he talks on there as well. Pastor Harding is interviewed in that on the Oprah show. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, but Oprah says, really? You think there's just one way? How could there just be one way? And it's a very popular notion. And uh, have, who's ever heard that story that I referenced here, The Blind Men and the Elephant? You guys ever heard of that? I'll tell you uh, just real quickly how this story goes. Um, so a blind, uh, the blind man, or there's a blind man, he's, he's there, he puts his hand out to feel, and there's an elephant there, and he starts feeling the elephant, and he says, oh, this, this elephant is so smooth, it's like a wall. 
But there's another blind man there. And uh, this blind man, second blind man, puts his hand out and touches the trunk. And he says, oh, it's round. It's like a snake. The elephant is like a snake. And then the third blind man touches the tusk. And he says, oh, it's sharp. An elephant is like a spear. Fourth man touches the leg. And he says, an elephant, no, no, this is big. It's, it's solid. It's like a tree. And the fifth blind man touches the ear and says, the elephant's like a fan. It's thin, it's light. And then the sixth blind man touches the tail and says, oh, an elephant's like a rope. You know, I can just kind of grab it. It's, it's pliable. And they start to argue with each other, each one arguing that his own perception of the elephant's correct. And uh, it's a, it's, I think that uh, tail is derived from an Indian type of a, a um, moral, moral tale. And uh, the Raja in the other room, he's sleeping. He hears all the commotion. He comes out onto the balcony and he says, what's all the arguing about? And they tell him. And he says, the elephant is an enormous animal. Each one of you is just touching a part of it. You put all the parts together and then you will find out what an elephant's like. So enlightened by the Raja's women, uh, wisdom, the blind men reached out. Uh, I'm sorry. The blind men talked to each other and reached agreement that each one of us knows only a part. So to find out the whole truth, we must put all our parts together. So you guys, you've never heard the story before. You've heard it now. It's very popular in a pluralistic culture like ours to use this kind of a, an analogy or this mindset, whether the illustration comes with it or not, to say, how could there be just one way? You Christians and you Hindus and you Buddhists and you Mormons, and you all of you groups, you are climbing up different sides of a mountain toward God. And if you listen to each other more closely, you'll get a better understanding of what God's really like. So, we said that uh, one of the things we want to do is we want to ask questions. We want to learn what are the assumptions? What are some of the assumptions or what, where's the flaw in this? So, I've got down on the page there, each of these objections, if you wanted to write down assumption or maybe a logical flaw, what can you think of? Where would you start if somebody raises this objection? That, that there's not, or that there's just one religion. Is that your question? Uh, the objection is there can't be just one true religion. Where would you start in asking questions? Where, where would you... Or what is the assumption behind it? So let me let me actually back up. The questions you ask, you do want to learn from asking the questions. You'll make sure that your hunch is correct if you if you think you know where they're going with it or what, where they're coming from. But you you don't want to just assume and say, oh well, you think, and then put words into their mouth. You want to use the questions like we talked about. But you don't necessarily have to be asking the question because you're clueless. <laughs> It's really great even if you have an idea of where you think they're coming from and you ask the question in a way as to reveal that. So if you think, well, I don't want to give it away yet. So you want to kind of have a target in your mind that you're shooting for with the question. You're trying to uncover something that is behind their belief or their statement that they haven't really disclosed or maybe even thought about. Does that make sense? So what would you be aiming at on this one? What's the target? Yes. Based on what we've learned so far, uh, I would say my 
question would be, what what do you define as true religion? Okay, that's a good question. So what do you mean by true religion? That's a very good question. Uh, so let me give you a positive answer, what maybe the atheist would say, or the unbeliever would say, and, and where do we go from there? So they would say, well, true religion, meaning one that has all the answers. I don't think any one religion has all the answers. Then what? Answer to what? What about life? Why we're here? How to how to know who God is? How to know God? And you would say, well, what do you what do you think? Well, I think well, I think one way. this is a good role play. Sure, one way. How many ways? Okay, okay. This is good. This is good. So if I answered, if I answered. Well, I think every religion has a part of it. What you would want to do then is is try to help me see that what I'm saying is I'm proposing another one way. I think I'm proposing an open-minded way that says all ways are partially right. But here's what Tim Keller says about this one. He says, it's no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions, namely that they're all equal is right. In other words, we're all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, just in different ways. Even the person who says, oh, all religions are just partially right, or all religions are the same, is one way you guys phrased it last week. That person's proposing one way to think about religions. So go back to the illustration then. Oops. Go back to the illustration. What's the hidden assumption behind this objection, this story that I posed? So the Raja comes out and says, you're all wrong. You only have part of the story. The Raja is like the objector, right? The Raja is saying, you only have part of the story. He's, he is giving them the absolute truth. What's the assumption there, then, about your person raising the objection? They don't see <laughs> What's that? They don't see the whole picture. Well... Raja sees the whole picture. That's right. He sees the entire elephant. And obviously, well, I guess obviously, in Christianity, we have God's Word, which gives us the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And the other religions might just have a tail or a trunk or a tusk or whatever. They don't have the entire truth as revealed from God. Yeah, you're, you're, that's, you're nailing it. But don't miss this one thing. Don't miss this one thing. If you just state that, the comeback probably is going to be, the person's response to that will very likely be, but you're just restating what you said in the first place. You're saying that your way is right and all the other ways are wrong, but I explained to you why that can't be. What they, what you have to help them see is, yes. They'll never know what an elephant looks like. They they're assuming that they're the Raja. So here's here's the hidden assumption. The person raising the objection has an omniscient perspective by which they can see the whole. And they can correct you who has a limited perspective. They're they're criticizing you for claiming to see the whole. And in doing so, they're claiming to see the whole. They're doing the thing that they're telling you shouldn't be done. So here's the response then that you were giving. And that is, we do. You're right. 
we do need an omniscient perspective if we're going to really understand the world and our place in it and all of that. And no one of us has this. I agree with you. No one of us has this omniscient perspective. But if God's there and he's spoken, we could have that perspective. So they're proposing a thing to you that they agree is impossible. And yet they realize that they know better. They realize that um, if you're going to know anything, if you're really going to know what the world's like, you've got to have some inside information from somebody who has a better perspective than any one of us little people down here on the planet who live this long compared to the history of you know, all that is. We can't possibly say we've got the right perspective. But if God's there and he's spoken, then we have, then we have something to start with. Uh, we've got a foundation. So that's, that's the hidden assumption there. And so by asking questions, what you want to do is you want to have in mind something like this that you see as you hear their objection. You might first start asking questions because you just don't know where to go. But what you want to be listening for as you hear them explain their view or their objection to you is you want to be thinking about, all right, where is where's the hidden assumption behind this? Or where is where's the um, thing behind this that or thing implied by this that just doesn't make sense? You're looking for the hole in what they're saying. If they're disagreeing with God, there's a hole in it. You're just trying to help you're trying to see it and then help them see it by leading them to those questions. So um, helping them see that uh, they're doing the thing they're telling you you shouldn't do would be your goal and your questions. Uh, and eventually you might have to just make it more obvious to them. But by listening and by asking, you're hopefully um, helping them them not be defensive. So that then if you do say, have you noticed that when you say this, what you're doing is assuming you know what the whole looks like. So that's the goal. Does that make sense? Questions about that? How did I do? Was that confusing? Was that... Uh, Be honest. For, for a second, posterity. I thought my head was going to explode. But... <laughs> yes. But we're you good. get this. You get it? <laughs> you did good. I All right. I mean, it was clear. It, it's, I think where I was sitting there thinking, like, okay, smoke is coming out of my ears, is that, <laughs> like, like, my dad, who knows the Bible, got the right answer and went where he needed to go yeah. but it's it's the identification of clearly identifying that hidden assumption that I think is hard for everybody because you've done this so long yeah. and so well that it, like identifying that thing that lies behind that they're borrowing mm-hmm. doing the exact same thing I think that's hard especially I mean it's hard for me right now to wrap my head around that, let alone in the heat of a conversation. <laughs> like trying to figure out, okay, what question do I ask? Uh, what question do I ask now? Yeah. And then, oh yeah, I've got to identify some hidden assumptions. <laughs> That's where... You said two things that I want to make sure I don't forget to highlight there. One of them is, you said borrowing. You're going to... Uh, well, let me back up. The first thing is, nothing replaces practice at this. And the more the more you are willing to just talk with somebody and and the conversation with I don't know, it's a good question. I'll think more about it. I'd love to talk to you more about it again. But the more you do this and then you go back and you 
look into it and you ask about it. You know, you come to church and you ask about it. You ask your brother or sister who's a little further along than you or you ask one of your pastors. Or uh, The more you do this, the more uh, it becomes second nature because, um, I'm trying to think of who said this. I think it was um, Vodi Bakram. I'm, I'm his t-shirt on right now. <laughs> Did you notice that? Uh, the, he says in, in his book, uh, expository, expository apologetics um, that you know the Bible is a book with two covers and there's only so much in there and you can you can get really familiar with it because it's a finite amount of information now uh, getting familiar with what it says and living in line with it that's another story that's why it's a lifelong process but uh, he mentioned how he, he made a big deal about how these same issues, these same objections, these kind of things we're talking about here aren't new. They've been going on for thousands of years. The Apostle Paul was addressing these same kind of questions. And if we get familiar with what God's Word says, and we talk with people about this frequently, you're going to eventually start recognizing that it's the same dozen or so conversations. Every one of the new topics that people bring up, it's the same conversation with maybe a new twist or a new application to it. So, uh, Practice is important with this. Doing this, just being willing to do it. And the second thing he said was borrowing. Um, this goes too far afield from what we're doing here tonight, but the unbeliever is going to constantly be borrowing from a biblical worldview, but not recognizing it or willing to admit it. So like this, they recognize that you really need an omniscient perspective if you're going to know where we're at in the world. I mean, it's like being out in the middle of the ocean. If you can't see a point of land somewhere or a star or something, you lost. <laughs> and they're trying to operate as if the world is just us out afloat in the middle of space and there's no meaning or purpose to it. But they know better and nobody lives that way. So when you recognize the desire that's in them, that that's legitimate, you're right. We need an omniscient perspective. Have you ever considered, that's the question number three, have you ever considered that God is there and has spoken? And he made us, in fact, we're the first revelation God made. He made us in his image. We are revelation of God. We reflect his image. That's why we can't get away from God's revelation. Have you ever considered that? That's going to ring true with them. They're made to recognize that. They're actively holding that down, whether they realize it or not. You had a question, Marcy? I'll just ask you that. All right. So I'm going to put a check mark on number one. We're going to count that one done, and we're going to go number two. Just to be clear, you yes. were clear. It's just hard. This, that, it's true. So These things, we're thinking about thinking in some aspects. <laughs> so it can, uh, it can rock your noodle a little bit. Uh, how could... A good God allows suffering. You've heard this one before, right? So give you a couple statements that epitomize this. So here you have Hillary. Hillary says, I just don't believe the God of Christianity exists. She's a college student. She says, God allows terrible suffering in the world. So he might be either all-powerful but not good because he can't end evil, or else he might be all-good but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, the all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible couldn't exist. And then Hillary's boyfriend's here. He says also, this isn't just a philosophical issue to me. This is personal. I won't believe in a God who allows suffering, even if he or she exists. Maybe God exists, maybe not. But if he does, I just can't trust him. 
So this really, I think, um, expresses two key issues when it comes to the problem of evil. Can you can you distinguish what the two are if you were to try to identify what are, what's the gripe objection in the first one and what what's it about in the second one? Yes. You're skipping ahead. You're skipping ahead. That's really good. That's good. You're going to move to the advanced class. No, that's, no that really is good. You're doing exactly what we said. I think I, I want to do. I want to do exactly what you're doing there. But I want to first recognize that there are two different issues being raised here, and this is the one that I used as an example last week about why it's important to ask questions to figure out which of these two versions of the problem they're interested in. Yes. This- the second person seems to have personal experience or some sort of suffering in his life mm-hmm. that he needs to deal with or doesn't want to deal with and is blaming God for it. Yeah, or is so traumatized by the evil he sees out there even. But it's personal with him. Right. He's like, I don't care if God's there or not. I don't like him. Right? So he has a strong sense of justice. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll give you the, the breakdown that I had in mind here. The first statement, she's really trying to pick at the logical problem of evil. So, all right, you say God's good, all this evil's happening. Well, he must not, either he's not powerful enough to do anything about it, or maybe he's not really good like you think he is. He's powerful enough, but he just doesn't care, so that, that therefore he's not good. So she's trying to point to a logical problem with evil. The second one was the emotional problem of evil. So uh, let's deal with the logical problem of evil first. What's the underlying assumption there? So I'll put that back up here. So there's Hillary's statement. What's the underlying assumption? One, we're placing suffering in the world They're equating it as something that's bad, not good, no one deserves it, um, but they're really not equating suffering to evil or, uh, I don't want to use the word sin, it's not necessarily sin, but the suffering that they're probably talking about is people getting sick, dying, things like that, there's a reason yeah. why we're dying. Okay, okay. So that goes, that goes all the way back. You're actually hitting. You're hitting. I think what is the key point? But you're actually even a little more nuanced. So you're saying there's natural evil, uh, tsunamis, colds, things that seem senseless because they didn't do anything to deserve what just happened to them. Dying right? tornadoes. Somebody getting robbed. Right. It's not like. We're not talking about the person who goes out, gets drunk, drives, and is killed in a car accident. We're not talking about that. We're talking about natural evil, right? And they're equating it to God allowing it, and if he's allowing these terrible things to happen, he must not be a good God because a good God wouldn't allow that to happen. So let me pick at your answer then a little bit. Um, 
So what you're saying is it's because we've sinned that those things are happening. So you are essentially saying, I don't believe this. I'm speaking as a skeptic here. So you're saying to me that God couldn't do anything about it. We sinned and he just couldn't stop us. That he couldn't stop what? Us from sinning and causing all of these bad things. I suppose he could have chose to stop sin from happening, but he didn't. That's And that's my point. It must not be good. No. That's what the skeptic will say. He's a good God, but he allowed sin to take place because he has a plan to overcome okay. the sin that man has committed. Yes. And that is the gospel. We go into the scripture yeah. of the gospel. Good, good. Did, like I, the assumption is the assumption of the skeptic that they're assuming that evil and good or evil sin and a good God can't coexist. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're you know, doing... that saying, well, no, they can. He actually has a plan for that. Right. So what you and Jess said is in really good harmony here, because Jess said they're making themselves the judge. And so here, here's how I phrased it. Uh, the person's assertion they're essentially saying is, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil because there is... Uh, and because there is much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the tra- uh, traditional good and powerful God couldn't exist. This is what they're saying. I kind of just summed it up. Here's the assumption behind it. If evil appears to be pointless from my perspective, my perspective, <laughs> our perspective is so limited. If it appears to be pointless to me, then it must be pointless. But... Listen, listen to what uh, Keller says about that. He says, this reasoning, of course, is fallacious. Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. Again, we see lurking within the supposedly hard-nosed skepticism an enormous faith in one's own cognitive faculties, your ability to reason and think this through and know why something would happen. If our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good answers to suffering, well, then there can't be any. And this is blind faith of a high order. The fallacy at the heart of this argument, and he gives an illustration. He talks about no seams. You guys ever been camping and you know what a no seam is? There's these little tiny, you can't see bugs so small, you can't see them, but their bite is like, you're like, where's the dog? You know, <laughs> Something bit me. And he says, if you look in your tent... And you can't see any no well, that's why they call them no But on the other hand, if somebody comes in and says there's no, there's a St. Bernard in your tent, and you go in there and you don't see a St. Bernard in your tent, well, there's probably not a St. Bernard in your tent. And what the unbeliever's doing here is they're assuming that re- reasons for suffering to exist and for uh, evil to exist is like a St. Bernard. And if you can't see it, it's not there. But Keller's argument is, no, uh, the universe is complex enough and vast enough and history is vast enough that a God all-powerful enough to create all this uh, and to hold and for us to want to blame for evil is wise enough 
to have reasons for what evil he's allowed that might just exceed our ability to, to really understand it all. We might not see the whole picture, in other words. I think that's possible. That is very highly possible, that we don't see the whole picture. So what he's dealing with here is the logical problem of evil. And he says, uh, based on this, evil does not logically disprove God. All right, fine. You all get that. You guys, right away, Jessica said, okay, so who died and made you God? Basically, right? How, how could you possibly say there could be no good reason to allow the world to operate the way it has? Um, in fact, the Bible gives plenty of good reason. It gives small reasons and stories like Joseph's, and it gives big cosmic reasons like what Paul says in Romans chapter 9 when he says uh, that you know God is sovereign over everything, and he's doing it for good reason, to highlight his mercy to those who have shown mercy. <clears throat> but, okay... So the boyfriend's there, and he's like, fine, but I still don't like this guy because this is just too painful for me stuck down here in the middle of it. And that's the emotional problem of suffering and evil. The person you're talking with feels hurt, and they feel anger because of the suffering and evil they've experienced. What do you say to the objection regarding evil, um, this kind of evil that we're talking about, the emotional objection? Uh, in response to this, uh, philosopher Peter Kreft points out that the Christian God came to earth to deliberately put himself on the hook of human suffering. In Jesus Christ, God experienced the greatest depths of pain. Therefore, though Christianity does not provide the reason for each experience of pain, it does provide deep resources for actually facing suffering with hope and courage rather than with bitterness and despair. In other words, he's saying that Christianity actually um, allows us to better deal with and face the evil in the world because we can, we can move through it with confidence that there's a reason for what's happening. That it's not just the cold, indifferent universe doing what the cold, indifferent universe does, things just happening, matter colliding with matter, that there's actually a purpose behind it all, and the purpose was set in motion by a good God who is loving and who is merciful. In fact, um, these these folks, philosophers like the one I just quoted, and Alvin, Alvin Plantinga, um, say that evil is actually evidence for God if you're willing to think through this tough issue. Uh, Alvin Plantinga says this, could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? I don't see how. There can be such a thing only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, that they're obliged to live. Only if God made us with a, a purpose in mind. And there is a right way for us to conform to that purpose and a wrong way for us to betray that purpose would there be, would it make sense for us to say that is wrong, that is evil? Otherwise, we're just going, yeah, I don't like it. And you know what? There's 20-ish of us in the room, and if I threw uh, some vanilla ice cream and bowls on the counter there, some of you are going to like it, some of you aren't going to like it. Are we? Do we really think that um, robbing and murder... And think of all the you know the evil that happens in the world. Do we really think those are on the same order as eh, I like vanilla? I don't like vanilla. We know better. 
we know that's not what it's like. We know there's, there's, we all have, we're born with a sense of transcendent moral obligation that goes beyond um, my likes and dislikes. You know, when we, when someone commits a crime, we don't go, stop, I don't like it. We say, stop, that's wrong. And we're intuitively recognizing this, this idea that there's purpose behind our existence. So uh, C.S. Lewis talks about that. He says uh, he described how he had originally rejected the idea of God because of the cruelty of life. And then he came to realize that evil was even more problematic for his new atheism. In the end, he realized that suffering provided a better argument for God's existence than one against it. He recognized that modern objections to God are based on a sense of fair play and justice. People ought not to suffer. They ought not to be excluded. They ought not to die of hunger or oppression. But the evolutionary mechanism that an atheist is stuck with believing brought us to where we're at, it's built on death, destruction, and violence of the strong against the weak. These things are perfectly natural. So then on what basis does the atheist judge the natural world to be horribly wrong, unfair, or unjust? The non-believer in God doesn't have a good basis for being outraged at injustice, which, as Lewis points out, was the reason for objecting God in the first place. If you're sure that this natural world is unjust and filled with evil, then you're assuming the reality of some extra-natural or supernatural standard by which you must make that judgment. So in the end, C.S. Lewis realized that his sense of outrage, that he felt it injustice, pointed to something beyond this world, and this is what he said about it. He said, of course, I could have just given up my idea of justice by saying, ah, it's just a private idea of my own. doesn't oblige anybody else. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. So... How could a good God allow suffering? Um, Romans chapter 1 says basically what you were saying, Tim, that the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God made it plain to them. All of the stuff that he's made points to him. His fingerprints are all over it chiefly among them, us. And that's why Paul goes on to say in the next chapter, indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law of Moses do by nature things required of the law by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. And it refers to our consciences. So what we've done here is we have, we've recognized how both with this logical problem of evil and the emotional problem of evil, um, the logical problem of evil really uh, doesn't stand up to its own test because um, if if we want to say that there's evil, we've got to assume that there's some transcendent purpose that things aren't conforming to. So the problem of evil actually is a problem for an unbeliever. If you want to say there's evil... What do you base that on? What transcendent standard do you base that on? Um, But the emotional problem of evil, uh, Phil, or I'm sorry, uh, Rob brought up. Um, The the assumption behind this, what's the assumption behind this one? The emotional problem of evil. 
personal part of it. What did you say? The personal part that the boyfriend was Yeah. I heard, I, her hand wasn't up, but I heard you saying something. They've right? been hurt and emotionally destroyed by something that's okay. happened close to them. Okay, something happened to me. Right. What were you going to say, Phyllis? I was going to say that <clears throat> there is an assumption that that the objector has a hand on what's evil and what's not. Okay, they're the judge. What level of what evil is. Yeah. So... Okay, both of these things you're saying are important. Something happened to me. Jess was saying they're making themselves the judge. That's what you're saying, too. Yes. Something you didn't deserve happened. Something I didn't deserve, right? So based on Romans, what we saw in Romans, we do. We have earned. Uh, Romans chapter 3, if you keep going. By the way, if you just want if you want to know the answers to almost every objection, read the book of Romans. It is the best. It's like the Bible in a nutshell. Uh, if you read the book of Romans... Learn it, uh, get familiar with the way Paul describes all of us being guilty, and then, uh, but God not holding our guilt against us, and the mercy of God, and he talks about that for 11 chapters, and then in chapter 12 he talks, and in view of God's mercy, then live differently, and that's what the book ends with. It's the best. It's the best for being able to uh, take God's word and apply it to these type of objections. But, so, all of these things are... Things that happen to me. What what's the thing they're ignoring about the problem of evil in the world? They're ignoring ignoring a big thing that you'll want to direct your questions to try to help them see. What is it, Phyllis? I would think that that we could we could reasonably ask them, "Have you ever considered your own level of perfection? Are you are you perfect? Boom. If not." Then, are you not still allowed mm-hmm. to do as you as you see fit? Yeah. Even when you know in your heart it may not be right, what is your standard of right? Yeah. So, so the problem of evil is out there. That's the assumption behind what they're saying there, Vince. Were you? What were you going to say? I would ask them if they're gonna if they're gonna rely on logic or if they're gonna rely on faith. Mm-hmm. The Bible states something very plain. Are they gonna believe that? Or are they gonna Well they that's another objection, but they don't believe the Bible. So that's not gonna get you now you're gonna tell them what the Bible says. But you want to help them see that the objection they're throwing up in front of the Bible, because that's what you're trying to get to is the Bible, but to share with what God says. They're logically trying to understand when the Bible commands faith. Yes, we... Oh, we don't have time to that. <laughs> faith, the unbeliever a lot of times will want to try to pit faith against reason. The two are not against each other. Um we should talk more about that. We could have we could have a whole class period on that. Uh, Thomas, Thomas doubted, and Jesus appeared, and he said, "Touch my side, see my hands." And then it says Thomas believed, and then Jesus said, "But blessed are those who will believe who won't see. You believe because you saw. Blessed are those who will believe won't see, but believe based on your testimony." In both cases, Jesus is talking about evidence, reason. One is in front of him. The other is testimonial evidence. 
Jesus isn't saying park your brain at the door. Uh, faith in the Bible is saying we have to believe God about things that, that our brains don't have access to, like the promise of future glory, resurrection. Nobody can prove that to you. You can't, we can't go in a time machine to the future and see when you're raised from the dead. You have to take God's word for it. But God gives you a whole book full of reasons to take his word for that. So we should, we, that's a whole other subject. I can't, I can't go any further with that because I want to get through this. That is a great question. I mean, we should talk more about that. So the problem is out there is what the objector is assuming. And the response to this is that the problem of evil is very personal. Uh, Dr. Vody Balcom Jr. says uh, that the correct form of this question, he says he speaks on college campuses all the time. And he says people will come up, and he could tell they've had a semester of philosophy. And he says you shouldn't be allowed to ask questions if you've only had a semester of philosophy. If you have a whole year of it or a couple years, you can ask questions. But if you've only had a semester, you shouldn't be allowed. And he says they'll come up and they'll say, if there is a good God and uh, he's all-powerful, what do you do with the problem of theodicy? <laughs> and he may, you know, kind of pokes fun at that. And he says, you're asking the question wrong. And they say, well, how do I properly ask the question? And he says, the right way to ask the question is, how can a righteous and holy God know what I did yesterday and not have killed me in my sleep? That brings it home. Now, don't say that to the, your friend. <laughs> but this is the target that you have in your mind, right? You're thinking, this guy is outraged because I'm a wicked sinner, and his boss is a stinking, filthy sinner, and those people over there in that country and those immigrants and all these people out there are messing the world up if they would all just be more like me. And just like you were brought to the point where you realize you're a wicked sinner and you needed salvation. That's what you're trying to help them see. That's where we're, that's the target eventually where we're going anyways. But you want to help them see that if God wiped evil off the face of the earth, they wouldn't be here. So that's, that's the target then of your questions uh, on this one. And that's exactly what Peter says in the third chapter of the second letter, he says, did it come up on the screen? Oh, sorry, there's my quote. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Here's you now saying, have you ever considered what God says? God, God is being patient with you and I. That's why he hasn't eradicated evil from the world. Because I'm evil. And he's rescuing people like me. He wants us to come to repentance. So Tim Keller says at the uh, end of this, let's see where this has brought us. Basically, he says, when you look at the cross of Jesus, you, you can't find the answer for every problem of why is this evil happening, but, but you don't know what the answer to every instance of evil is, but you know what it's not. It's not that God doesn't care. He cares enough to have come and hung on a cross for the evil we do so that he could forgive us and uh, make the unrighteous righteous. So, all right, we got through two of them and we have four minutes left. <laughs> uh, 
No, we can't do next week. We said we would not do that. Um, I have... So Christianity is a straitjacket. Let me give you the nutshell version. So Christianity is just too confining. I just can't see myself living that way. What's the assumption behind that? I can do one. I can do this one more. Cliff Notes version in three minutes. What's that? The assumption is that he had, the person has a right to do as they please. Well, hey, they reject any form of religion, so they do. It's just all us monkey descendants down here, and we can do whatever we want, except say that their views wrong. By the way, <laughs> that's prohibited. <laughs> What's the hidden assumption here? You kind of, you kind of got it. Christianity is restrictive. It's, uh, it is, isn't it? Can you just do anything you want? So Christianity is restrictive, but what? It assumes that there's a right and wrong, like that there are that there is a moral standard. Well, that, that they might be a version of this might be doing that. The version of what I'm thinking of is they're just hey. Um, What's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. Quit telling me how to live. Quit pushing your morality on me. Which, by the way, if you dug, you you could get at the fact that they're pushing their morality on you by saying it's wrong to push your morality on them. But what were we going to say, Jess? I mean, I feel like I would need more to help the person is really feeling restricted by. Yeah, that's good. Restrict what? Because the Bible does restrict you from things that are going to eventually kill you. Yeah. So that's a great example. Yeah. What you want is sin and slavery. So, well, and even before you get that deep in there, you could say, well, what do you mean by it's a straitjacket? Well, you know, I can't smoke, I can't dance anymore, I can't. And then you could, you know, you could deal with those objections, but. The assumption behind there is Christianity is restrictive while other views, particularly that person's views, are liberating. But, I mean, you could easily ask, so you don't believe anything's wrong? Oh, of course. I mean, I think it's wrong to murder. I think it's... In fact, a lot of times the popular sentiment of our day is, yeah, pretty much there's not so, such a thing as absolute right and wrong. You just shouldn't infringe on other people's rights which is basically contradicting what they just said because that's absolutely right or wrong. But they, they'll limit it to that one item. That's pretty much the, the thing they'll limit it to. So how do you respond to this? And I'm about out of time, so I'll just put it up on the screen here. Freedom can't be defined strictly in negative terms. The absence of confinement and constraint, in other words. In fact, in many cases, confinement and constraint actually leads to liberation. So think of... Um, an athlete, football player. I am free, man. I never go to practice. I never run drills. I haven't even looked at the playbook. When you get out on the field, will you be free? You'll be sitting on the bench over there. Yeah, a swimmer. They never go. They never do laps. They never do weight training. They never do any. They All of the limits on their diet, on their activities that they put on themselves is what liberates them to do things they would never be able to do otherwise. They'd never be capable of winning that you know, time in that one event in their swim meet or being a star quarterback. If they didn't discipline and limit themselves in some ways, they wouldn't be free in the other ways that really matter to them. And uh, did I put it on here? 
Eh, I'll skip ahead to it. Christianity, uh, one of the things you could point out is Christianity, more than any other major religion in the world, has been able to spread culture to culture for the very fact that it doesn't get confined to a single culture. It's what we would call supercultural or supracultural. Um, it's not focused on little, you know, nitpicky rules and um, and things like that. The focus of Christianity at the heart of it is a principle of what? What's the core? What is what sums up all the law and the commands? What? Love. And love is the most liberating freedom loss of all. That's the way Tim Keller puts it in this book. Think about that. If you love, so who's married? Raise your hand. You're married. Um, are you free to date anyone you want? <laughs> you are not free to date anyone you want. You give up that freedom because of uh, the commitment you have to that one that you love. In that relationship, that relationship of love that you have, uh, really is in many ways unparalleled among other human relationships. You are gaining something by limiting yourself in that way. And so that's that's really in a nutshell the answer that he gives for that. But ultimately, the, the assumption behind it's faulty, and that is saying that everybody, I'm just totally free. No, everybody's got, we all use some sort of limits. Again, it goes back to we're made in God's image. We all know better. Nobody lives like there's no restraints. I would hate to live in that world. They wouldn't want to live in that world. So, all right, put a check mark. I got three check marks. That's not bad, right? It's pretty bad. <laughs> I think you should have a podcast for the rest of you. Oh, that'd be fun. There you go. That's a good idea. This one, um, I do have a couple. I have some notes. I purposely kept the notes really trim on these last ones because I knew I wouldn't probably get to it. But this last one, I'm going to recommend to you. There it is. I have on my T-shirt here a statement. I wore a zip sweater so I could show you. It's a statement by Bodie Balcom Jr., who's a pastor, who uh, he is. There's two versions of this on the Internet. I'll send the whole class a YouTube link to this sermon, the shorter version of it. It's like 30 minutes. Take 30 minutes and listen to it. But he goes through... Peter's statement that holy men of old spoke as they were, or no, uh, sorry, not that one, that um, uh, we heard, we have this word of prophecy made more sure, and then he goes on to describe the scripture and what it is. And he sums it up in this statement that we have, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a collection, a reliable collection of historical documents that are written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that fulfill specific prophecies and whose authors claim it to be divine in origin rather than human. Can you put a Gendal? I missed one phrase. But if you remember that phrase and that verse from Second Peter, you've got it. That is your explanation of when some, when someone comes and says, you can't, take the, you can't believe what the Bible says. I guarantee you people who say that have never really looked into it. They just, they really don't know what they're talking about. And if you know a little bit of what you're talking about, they'll be like, wow, I never really knew that. And there goes that objection. The balloon pops, and you're there talking with your friend about the good news. Can I put a fourth check mark up there? No. <laughs> All right. I'll send you a link to that. Thank you guys for your good attention. There you go. That's that's right. If you buy this book, you'll have all those answers. This book and Vody Balcom's sermon on YouTube, then you'll have all the answers. All right, quick word of prayer. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for this time together. Uh, please take what we've discussed and help us to be better witnesses for you because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.